0: Hello Dreamers, Happy New Year, and welcome back. Before we get started, I have a few notes about this podcast. This is an independent one-woman show, which means I depend on you, the listeners, to help keep it going and to help new listeners discover us. And there are a number of ways that you can help. You can leave a nice rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platforms you listen to your shows on. You can recommend us in true crime discussion groups and forums. You can follow the show on social media, Facebook, Instagram, X. Like, follow, comment, share, all the good stuff. And if you would like to go above and beyond, you can subscribe to the show's Patreon, where for just starting at $1 a month, you can access dozens of exclusive premium episodes that you won't hear anywhere else. And if a subscription isn't your thing, but you would still like to contribute to the podcast, you can do so through PayPal using my email, CaliforniaPod at gmail.com. All of this junk will be in the show notes. I have a lot of you to thank, but I'm not that organized right now. I'll get back to it, and I'll have some shout-outs for new patrons and supporters. This is the fourth and final part of our series on the murders in Cheshire, the 2007 killings of three members of the Pettit family. If you haven't listened to the first three parts, then you'll want to pause this, listen to those first so that you're caught up. I also need to provide you with this warning. This series on the murders in Cheshire contains details involving mass murder, child sexual abuse, sexual assault, torture, and extreme violence. The material contained in this episode is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. So, in the first three parts of this series, we mostly went over the elements of this crime, the backgrounds of the two perpetrators, along with each of their individual confessions. I spent a good amount of time picking apart their confessions because I was just trying to figure out who is the biggest liar, and I told you what I believed happened and what I didn't think happened. Throughout most of my retelling of this case, I alluded to the notion that there were some serious issues raised about the police response to the 911 call that was made from the Bank of America about the Pettit family being held hostage and the aftermath of the killings in the ensuing months and years. So that's what we're going to take a look at as we finish out this series. This is going to be a shorter episode. And it'll be the last one from the state of Connecticut, finally. One of the more troubling aspects of this case was something I've mentioned a couple times as we've gone along here and it's the fact that there had been some unofficial reports coming out from at least one or possibly even more police officers or first responders who responded to the scene of the murders that morning. They had told some people in the community allegedly that screaming could be heard coming from at least one of the girls from inside the home while they were outside. In the documentary that I watched about this case, which was made back in 2013, some six years after these crimes, Jennifer Pettit's sister, Cindy, she questioned what the police did and didn't do that morning. If they heard screaming towards the end of the hostage situation, then what exactly did they do about it? Did they even try to go into the house? Or did they just stand around outside and wait? She also pointed out in the documentary that surrounding the house on the first level of the home, the windows had no window coverings. There were no blinds, no curtains, no shades, nothing. And sure enough, they showed this picture of Jennifer Pettit standing near her front door and some windows, and they were wide open. Her sister wanted to know if they even tried looking into the house through the windows but for whatever reasons information about what actions the police took that morning were not being shared that readily with the public or with the family and as the investigation went on and the days and weeks were passing by it only got worse in the immediate aftermath of the killings it seemed like the whole state of connecticut was wanting to see these two men breathe their last breath at a public hanging. Never mind the judge, never mind the jury. And I mentioned that the Pettit killings ended up delaying the banning of the death penalty in the state of Connecticut, but ultimately it was really a waste of time because the death penalty was inevitably repealed. It's been taken off the books as a punishment option for first-degree murder. And that happened just a handful of years following the Pettit murders. I mentioned in the last episode that both killers were initially sentenced to death, but both sentences have since been commuted to life in prison. Once the state banned capital punishment. One of the things the documentary managed to do was to find a couple of people who had some surprisingly nice things to say about the two perpetrators of these crimes. Stephen Hayes and Joshua (sighs) Karmaszewski. I don't know if they're nice things to say, per se, but considering these were and are two of the most despicable murderers in recent memory, it's basically a miracle that anyone would be willing to come forward and say that they knew a different, not-so-awful side of these two men. Well, one of the people who spoke out was Stephen Hayes' defense attorney. So naturally, he's going to have decent things to say about his client. He said that when he first met Hayes, that he was very depressed and suicidal. He says that Hayes didn't have any real understanding of how all this happened in the first place. But his defense attorney did want to point out that prior to the Cheshire murders, Hayes did have a very long rap sheet. But his crimes were all nonviolent, allegedly. He says that hayes would do things like watch people as they drove to places like parks and stuff and then he would watch them get into their cars and this was an activity that stephen hayes would participate in exclusively during the daylight hours so when these people would walk away from their car to go hiking or whatever he would break into their vehicle and take whatever could be taken out of it like in my case the last time somebody ransacked my car they ended up taking some coins and some sunglasses, phone chargers, and my custom California Dreaming tote bag, which I was really upset about. And so anyway, while Hayes's attorney would say that in speaking about his client or his former client, you're not exactly dealing with a person here who has the same type of typical violent criminal background that you would normally find in a case involving three cold-blooded murders Two sexual assaults and one house burned down to the ground. In other words, he's using the defense that people don't jump from petty car break ins to murder overnight. And what I have to say to that is that may be true. I would lean more towards there's always exceptions to everything. It would be rare for someone to go from minor brushes with the law to a triple homicide but you know what we've had people do some stuff their first time at bat jody arias chris watts oj simpson scott peterson phil specter that shithead up in moscow idaho and most school shooters think about it most of these people i just mentioned have insignificant criminal histories. And while most of the people that I just checked off right now, they were all accused and convicted of murdering intimate partners with the exception of OJ and the Idaho guy and also the mass shooters. My whole point is, even if this wasn't their first murder rodeo, every single one of these killers or alleged killers had to start somewhere and commit their very first murder without even having so much as caught a jaywalking case. Besides, having my car been broken into twice since I've moved here to Southern Nevada, I don't take it lightly. Nowadays, I'm always worried about my car being locked, if I've left anything valuable in plain sight, blah blah blah. Because even though it is petty, someone still invaded my personal space. Somebody still came and violated my car. Someone still put their yucky hands all over my pretty stuff. And leaving behind who knows what kinds of cooties and germs everywhere. I'm not going to stand there and think, wow, that's such a petty crime. I hope whoever does this manages to keep doing petty crimes for the rest of their life because I would sure hate for that person to level up to homicide their next time out. Some people who decide one day to go out and murder, like the Moscow, Idaho guy, I know he's not been convicted, but I'm pretty sure he's guilty. (laughs) I don't know. I haven't been following the case that closely. Hopefully the trial will start soon and he'll get convicted and we could just start calling him a killer. But he's somebody who just woke up one day and was like, shit, I'm going to go murder four people. He literally did that and never hurt anyone ever before in the past. But anyways, for his defense attorney to sit there and say, We're not dealing with your typical, everyday, run-of-the-mill wrongdoer. I mean, hello, look at what this guy did. His criminal past isn't all about what he did, but it's about how and why he does it. And that goes back to him being a sociopath. They all escalate, some faster than others. This Hayes character was at the end of his rope, and he did what he did. Then his attorney said this, and this is a quote, There is no reason that anyone would look at that history and think, yeah, this guy is going to do something really bad one day. I would totally disagree with that, but really, you don't have to look into this guy's criminal history. Just look into his dead, cold, dark eyes and you will see evil. So the documentarians also interviewed Hayes' daughter, Alicia, and she seems to have made a decent life for herself. I believe first in the military and then in law enforcement, despite her father, in spite of her father. Which one is it? Despite and spite both either? Are they interchangeable? I don't know. And she speaks fondly when it comes to some of her childhood memories of her dad. And she's genuinely reaching, trying to hang on to some semblance of her relationship with her father by questioning his and Karma Sejewski's culpability. And, you know, it kind of sounds like her father may have battled hard to get his daughter to hang on to that part of him that she once knew because she sounds like her father, questioning how much of this is really his fault and how much of it was his co-conspirator's fault. She also seems to be searching for answers. And, you know, what is really sad is that considering how many things went wrong at the Pettit house that night and into the morning, the reasons behind why these two men did this crime is horrifyingly simple, money and sexual assault. It's tough to hear that these two caused so much mayhem and havoc over money and sexual assault. And that's probably why people have a hard time accepting those answers. They want something a little bit bigger or deeper, or more meaningful, and there just isn't anything. These guys were a couple of idiots that had nothing going for them. The only thing that they knew how to do was take from other people, and they chose the Pettits. The documentarians also interviewed Joshua Karmadzewski's aunt and uncle. That was a mouthful. They got the news that morning of the fire and the killings from his father, informing them that he believed his son was implicated in the home invasion burglary that morning in Cheshire. And the uncle was like, that means that he was involved in multiple murders too. The uncle pointed out that you would never expect to see his last name flash across his local news channel the way that it was. Karma is quite a unique name. And they are a relatively celebrated family of stage actors in Russia. And Joshua Karma grandfather was a theater director, a costume designer, and an architect. Yeah, so greatness in one's lineage is only going to carry a person so far in life. There comes a time when you have to carve out your own path. It's just for this particular Karma He chose violence. In his interview, the uncle did say that over the years, his brother, Joshua Komarzyzewski's dad, and his family had grown increasingly more withdrawn and isolated for some reason, but he didn't specifically say why. They were, for the most part, living their lives very quietly when all of this happened. So when the media came buzzing around their house following the murders, What they ended up doing was handing a typewritten note to the media that said, this is an absolute tragedy. Our deepest sympathy goes out to the Pettit family and to those whose lives they've touched. We cannot understand what would have made something like this happen. There's nothing else we could say at this time. Another person that was interviewed in this documentary was Karma Sujewski's counselor at the treatment center that he was seeing. And he also had a different side of this criminal to talk about. And, you know, they showed a very nice picture of Karma Jeski when he was younger. And he looks really nicely put together. He has a soft, handsome face, a nice smile. You would never guess, right? Karma Jeski was said to have wanted to do something with his life, which is why he was at that treatment center to work on his recovery and to get his life back on track. He was struggling with drug addiction. he had aspirations of following in his grandfather's footsteps, and he wanted to be an architect and In the documentary, they showed some of Karmasajevsky's artwork. He liked drawing buildings, and it seemed like I'll have to admit his drawings are really impressive it's such a stark contrast, considering the path Karmasajevsky ultimately went down but He had a rap sheet of his own to speak of. And you know what? Now that I'm taking a closer look at it, he is the one who liked the residential burglaries. And because we know that the Pettits didn't live all that far away from the Kamarczewskis, it's not a stretch to say that the idea to break into the house was probably his. But when these two men mixed together, they both became quite unhinged and out of control by the time all of this came to an end when it came to karma sujefsky's rap sheet in addition to having those 18 robbery and larceny convictions he was also apparently known to have a photographic memory so when he recounted all those burglaries that he committed to his attorney he was able to tell the story right down to the most minute of details. Every single one of those burglaries, having this photographic memory caused him to have a relatively high IQ. But Karma Sajeski had other reasons for wanting to break into homes. When he would burglarize a house, he wouldn't just run in and run out with the things that he wanted to take. He would stay in there for a really long time, hours on end at night in the dark, listening to the people throughout the house, breathing and sleeping. So he is that creepy guy in the neighborhood that makes you wanna lock your doors and hide your children. He was even ballsy enough to break into a home that was owned by a Connecticut state trooper. His defense attorney had less defensive things to say about him than Hayes's attorney. When I talked about Karma Sajeski and Hayes in the previous three episodes, I tried to break down who I felt was lying and who I felt was telling the truth. From this perspective, we're getting the impression that Karma Sergevsky may very well have been the brains and the driving force behind most of what happened. But I think, collectively, they did together what they both probably were too chicken to do on their own, and it ended disastrously. Karma Sargevsky's former defense attorney said that once he got to know him, he was able to see how his mind worked. And when he tried to figure out why Karma Sajewski stayed inside homes, listening to people sleep, he had no apparent reason, but I would think it's because he's a child sexual abuser and a pedophile. And those urges were developing and it was only going to be a matter of time before he would begin to act out on those urges. But Karma Sajewski needed a partner in crime But you know, when all is said and done and burned to the ground, to me, the both of them were equally complicit. Karma Sajeski's defense attorney had even issued a warning to the judge in his previous case that his client was a very sick man and that somebody needed to keep an eye on him and that he might be one of the worst criminals they would ever have in their courtrooms in Connecticut. So there's a red flag that was totally overlooked in 2002, right? That year, Joshua Karmasejewski was sentenced to almost 10 years in prison for those 18 burglaries. He managed to get out on parole in just five years in April of 2007, only three months before the home invasion and murders. Next, the documentary cut to what looked like an impromptu press conference the chairman of the pardons and parole board was giving. The media had been triggered to show up at his offices to start asking the hard questions about what these two rapists and killers were up to between the time they got out of jail, which was very recently for the both of them, till the time the both of them got out on parole in the months leading up to the home invasion. And while he told the press that the two suspects that they had in custody were very capable of doing what they were being accused of doing in taking a look at their background. He said that there were no red flags, that something like this was in the works, that neither of the suspects failed any drug tests in the handful of months that they'd been on parole, which we know is not true because Hayes failed a drug test and was sent back to jail, paroled again, only to come out and go on to commit these murders just weeks later. The chairman of pardons and parole also said that both men were gainfully employed And that they were both living in safe, stable homes with family. And we also know that none of that is true either. So they're lying to the public now in the wake of these murders. These officials. Yeah, it's really disappointing. Yet somehow not that surprising. But there was one thing about Karma parole in his 2002 case that I should mention. There is a law in Connecticut that was passed some 10 years before the home invasion and murders that required a transcript of the sentencing hearings of everyone who goes up for parole. This is the hearing where they argue about what the sentence should be for whatever it was. The defendant was convicted of in his case. It was a plea bargain to the 18 burglaries. The idea is that you find out more about what's going on with the defendant after the fact, after you find out the seriousness of his crimes, the impact on the victims, that sort of things. Those are the things they go over in this hearing. So I skimmed through this document from back in 2002. And yeah, there's a lot of talk about not just what Karma Suggesti took from people's homes, but what he took from them in terms of their peace of mind, and feeling safe inside their houses. The prosecutor at the time pointed out how most people break into homes during the day when people are at work, and there's something that is next-level disturbing about the manner in which Karma broke into homes at night and just lingered. His defense attorney acknowledged the seriousness of the burglaries, but went on to say, quote, I don't think we can stress enough the fact that the magnitude of Josh's problems are from his own mouth. And the reason I mention that is that's the first step towards rehabilitation is to acknowledge what you've done and how bad you've been. This one warrant that spawned all this litigation may have been the impetus for Josh to finally say, you know, this is craziness. I've got to stop. It may have been a self harming wish of his own to make it all known, But whatever it was, it was a motivating factor for him to really bury himself, and he did. He went around, in fact, and showed them houses, and what his attorney meant by them is investigators, detectives, and stuff. He went around and showed them houses that he didn't even remember the streets. He drove around and showed them exactly where he burglarized houses years. Well, not years before, but sometime before. So... As a result of this apparent crime spree tour that he took investigators on brought him charges in two separate counties. They both prosecuted him and they both convicted him. So then Kamasujewski's attorney said, quote, Josh has a history that is really different. It's terribly disturbing. His family is here today, but just the salient points they point out. The age of 14 was a terrible year for him. Four people died, including his grandfather. And his counselor, he learned that he was adopted. And according to his parents, that was traumatic for him. He suffers from ADD dyslexia and dysgraphia, another learning disability that he also had eight concussions, which led to a progressive deterioration in his personality. He had been placed in a treatment facility and told the judge that he should have been kept there. So, yeah, this is what Karma Sejewski's attorney was saying about him five years before the Pettit murders Two. The judge at his sentencing hearing, the attorney continued, quote, there's clearly something very wrong because the state hit on something else. These burglaries, although they may have been a vehicle for him to buy drugs, were carefully planned and he has a photographic memory and he took them to every house and he knew what he took from each house, which is a scary, scary thing to contemplate. So what I'm trying to suggest to the court is that there's a mental abnormality here or a psychiatric problem that needs to be addressed over and above the drug abuse and drug addiction. Yeah, it's called pedophilia. His attorney continued, so whatever remedy the court fashions, I'm asking the court to consider that to be a requirement. So here, Dreamers, his attorney is asking the judge to make sure that they address these other quote unquote mental abnormalities or psychiatric problems that are beyond just drug abuse and drug addiction. And he said, because a person who could take from people and name what they took and how they took it in such detail obviously has a twisted psyche. And that is part and parcel of the problem. I think it's a mental aberration of some sort that would number one, can him to do it in the first place. And secondly, to remember it and feel compelled at some point to unburden himself with all the details. (sighs) You know, I don't think Karma would have unburdened himself voluntarily, like at all. I don't think he would have ever come forward. The only reason he confessed to all of these crimes was because he got caught. So anyway, this, document, the transcript from this hearing goes on to talk about some child sexual abuse that happened to Karma Sejewski at different points in his life and how he was in foster care for a time. So yeah, there were definitely red flags. And when the chairman of the parole and pardons said that there weren't any, he was lying As I was saying, though, it is a law in Connecticut that a transcript of this very document that I just went over be provided to the parole board, a document that referred to Josh kamer as a predator several times. This document did not make it to the parole board. What they had before them at the parole hearing was a very young, handsome, white, highly intelligent man who came from a seemingly good family that homeschooled him, who made some foolish mistakes and bad decisions. For everything that he had been sentenced for, he could have been sent to prison for the rest of his life, and none of this would have ever happened. But Karma Sejewski got a break and was paroled after serving only five years. Three months later, the Pettit women would be dead. Also included in the documentary was an audio clip from what sounds like a radio talk show or a call in show or something like that on an AM channel. And the person on the line is a lieutenant with the Cheshire Police, and part of what he said was, quote, first of all, the Cheshire Police Department and their response to this initial call was absolutely outstanding. They did a stellar job. The chief, all the personnel, and the Cheshire PD deserve all the praise and credit. This was an opinion that was growing increasingly unpopular with each passing day following the murders. The police actually had little that they were going to share with the public. And they made that clear. We're not going to talk about the assaults. We're not going to talk about how these people were killed. We're not going to get into the details. OK, so why not just tell the public what you're willing to share? Well, it didn't matter anyway. A little more than three months after the home invasion and murders, the court overseeing the case imposed a gag order on everybody involved. So it left everyone guessing and speculating. But the biggest question everyone had on their minds was what was going on with the police between the time Hayes got back from the bank with Jennifer and when the two suspects fled the house and ran right into the arms of a police. The rumors had gone so wildly insane that there was even a rumor that had gone around that the only surviving member of the family, Dr. Pettit, was somehow involved in this mess. Being on the other end of things, I know that I'm curious about these high-profile crimes and I want information too, but I definitely don't like sorting through rumors and fake news. So I've learned to be patient and just wait for the news to trickle out and eventually I'll cover a story. Sometimes I'll do breaking news type of stuff, but if police are going to be so tight-lipped about everything, there's no point because I'm not going to sit here and tell you about all the speculation and rumors that you can find all over the internet it's a waste of time anyway whatever the case was going to be both karma suggest and Hayes's defense attorneys knew that their clients were going to be looking at lethal injection if they were convicted there were so many terrible details about this crime I don't even know if any of you have seen the crime scene photos I have some screenshots I can post them in the comments if you're curious I don't post pictures of I don't think there's any pictures of like the autopsies or anything like that I don't really look for that stuff but I mean the crime scene and you can see like the bedrooms of these girls were completely charred and you can still see like ligatures like tied to the bedposts and stuff it's really um, yeah anyway I don't know if I'll post them Sorry, this is a really overwhelming story. As I was trying to say, there are so many aspects to this crime. The break-in, the beating, the bank robbery, the hostage-taking, the sexual assaults, three murders, the fire, the gasoline. It was a lot. And they knew they had the right guys. There's no question about that. So their attorneys wanted to have their clients plead guilty to all the charges... They wanted to avoid trials they wanted to avoid decades of appeals and just put these guys away and forget about them and both hayes and karma agreed that they would plead guilty in exchange for life sentences without the possibility of parole but as i mentioned in part three the prosecution rejected the plea deal and opted to go to trial with the sole purpose of being able to seek the death penalty And they could not impose the death penalty without the trial phase. You can't accept a plea deal and give them the death penalty as the punishment. It has to be given at trial. Even Jennifer's parents, who were devoutly religious people and very much against the death penalty their whole lives, wanted to see both of these guys on death row too. So yeah, that was what the climate was like in Connecticut in the wake of the Pettit murders. So Stephen Hayes had two brothers that were both interviewed on the HBO documentary. Their names are Matthew and Brian. And at first they were talking about what a manipulator and a liar Hayes was, and probably still is, especially with their elderly mother. He was always lying to her and blaming them for everything that went wrong. They had one final Christmas together, the four of them, the three sons and the mom, in 2006, seven months before the murders. And they pointed out that it was the first time the three of them had been with their mom all together like that for the holidays because Hayes just happened to be out of jail for that small window of time. When they had woken up to the news of the home invasion, they were like, okay, where's Steve? We know this is exactly something that he would do the smashing up of police cars, and the home invasion, okay, yeah, all of that is in Stephen Hayes' wheelhouse. But when it came to the arson, rapes, and killings, that was most likely Joshua Karmasejewski, they said. But then they rolled back on that and said, well, we don't know if Josh was the mastermind or not. Well, neither one of them are criminal masterminds since they ended up getting caught. I just thought it was kind of funny how they defended their brother at first, And then they immediately turned around and talked shit on him in the next breath. But whatever they say, whatever they think, their brother still did that. And from here, one of his brothers just kind of leaned back and said, fuck a trial, just flip the switch. The other brother said, forget getting to the flipping of the switch. And then expressed his hopes that someone would just put a bullet in Hayes's head one of these days when he's being transported to and from his court hearings. So yeah, Hayes' own brothers who just entertained the possibility that Karma could have been the mastermind, but no matter, just fry them both. The documentarians did an interview with a young woman named Caroline, who at some point was in a serious long-term relationship with Karma I really don't have anything to say about her. She's very disturbing to listen to, to listen to her talk about him. She's very young. She looks very innocent. She speaks so fondly and lovingly about him. And then she talked about their sex life and the things that he liked to do. And it's just so cringe that I had to fast forward through it. I couldn't take it anymore. After she started talking about him enjoying being the dominant partner But he was just so romantic and loving and caring, and he'd always check on her to make sure that she's okay and he's not hurting her or whatever. And then she called him her soulmate. Ugh, I wanted to puke. By the way, when Karma asked Caroline's father for her hand in marriage, her father pulled Josh Karma aside and said, There are two things about you that concern me. One is that you're a career criminal, and the other is that you're a pedophile. This gentleman, he was aware that both of his daughters, even though they were of legal age, they both looked much younger than their actual age. And he strongly believed that Karma Sejewski was attracted to her because she looked like an underage girl. So I've already told you that these two, Hayes and Karma Sajewski, linked up in a halfway house, which they moved out of only two months before the murders in May of 2007 so hearkening back to that statement from the chairman of the pardon and parole board where he said there were no recent failed drug tests which we already know is not true and that they both had stable places to live also not true they had been in a halfway house and i don't know maybe that's stable to some people but um not to me and hayes he ended up going to his mother's house which was a one-bedroom apartment And it was starting to feel like all three of the Hayes boys, to tell you the truth, were continuing their lifelong campaign to see who could be the bigger disappointment in their mother's eyes. I mean, low-key, I'm joking, but seeing his brothers on this interview and how they talked about flipping the switch and putting a bullet into him, I mean, that's their brother. That's their blood relative. Most of the time, family members tend to show some kind of public support But not these guys. And honestly, at the time in Connecticut, it was probably not the best idea in the world to announce the fact that you're related to one of the Cheshire murderers. So the counselor that was working at the halfway house said he was interviewed on the documentary, too. He said that he saw the two of them, Karma Sejewski and Hayes, together all the time. And they kind of he said they bonded over 12 step programs, I guess. In Hayes' own paperwork, and his counseling notes, he wrote in his own handwriting, quote, Drugs are not my main problem. I am my main problem. My self-destructive attitude and behavior. What I like about getting high is to escape my feelings. I've self-medicated so much, I don't know how to feel anymore. Unresolved anger controls me. It haunts me day and night, sometimes to the point of obsession, even scary fantasy. We know that in the days leading up to the killings, Hayes was in the process of getting kicked out of his mother's apartment. I said it earlier. He was under a lot of pressure for something to happen for him, for him to make something happen for himself and for his family. And, well, it would turn out that that something was the home invasion plan with Karma Sajewski. He kept telling his mom he was going to take care of her. He was going to change her life. He was going to be the one. It's like, Yeah. He changed some lives, all right. The media still wanted to know more about what happened in terms of the police response. So some six months after the murders, the media filed a Freedom of Information Act and they got some documents, including the transcripts of the communications between law enforcement officials during the time this crime was unfolding, though it was heavily redacted. And that's what the media really wanted to do, was to be able to put together a more solid timeline of what the police were doing the whole time this crime was unfolding. And from what they could see in the document, it appears that this whole thing could have been cut off at the bank. It could have been cut off on the drive home. It could have been cut off at the home, at the front door, on the porch. They stood out there together, locked out, knocking on the door, trying to get in. Some screenshots of this document were shown, but there's nothing to be read at all. All it says is dispatcher and caller, and most of the dialogue is completely blacked out. And the police department just kept going to the media, telling stories that were not exactly true, while doing everything they could to keep everything under wraps. At a press conference, the Cheshire police said this direct quote to the media. Upon arrival at the victim's residence, the first officer observed the private residence fully engulfed in flames. In another recording, someone from the police department said, it worked out so that officers arrived on scene, just as the suspects were leaving the residence. The problem with that story is, when Dr. Pettit managed to escape through the bilco doors that led to the outside, he saw officers hiding behind trees, and logic would dictate that They must have seen him, too, but did not seem to react to this tall, bloodied and beaten man who was tied up and hopping across his front yard looking for help. They held their positions. So, yeah, they didn't even stop and think that perhaps there was something slightly drastic going on inside this house and that they needed to hurry up and do something. Jennifer Pettit's parents felt as if the police had made their presence known. That would have been their best chance to save everyone's lives. But they squandered it by staying hidden in trees and bushes. Despite all the phone calls and letters from the surviving family members demanding answers from the Cheshire Police Department, they got nothing but silence. So, back to the media, this time with the Cheshire town manager who got up to a podium of microphones at a press conference and stated, quote, I just can't say enough good things about how proud I am of the extraordinary effort of our police officers and our firefighters. They're extremely well-trained, they're a great group of professionals, and I think today exemplified the finest of what the police and fire are all about in this community. I can't thank them enough because without their great work, this could have been a far worse tragedy. We were very fortunate. Um, kind of sounds like the exact opposite of that. I mean, just me. Needless to say, Jennifer's sister was beside herself. Like, what do you mean this could have been far worse? Like, more deaths? Were the three who did die, like, were those like moderate losses? Yeah, okay. Perhaps if Hayes and Karma Sajewski did not, basically hand themselves over to the police on a silver platter they may have gone on to commit more violent crimes and murders but they were just standing outside the house when they murdered the three victims at hand police don't get to be publicly lauded over and over again for standing by while women and children inside are being raped strangled and burned to death they literally stood outside and were coming to the media and telling lies to everybody's faces It's pathetic to look back on it. It's absolutely pathetic. That 911 call came in from the bank at 921 a.m. The house had a landline. Police obtained that number but never called it. They never called. In fact, as what I heard from one report that I read, they turned down the hostage negotiator. They didn't call him in. They didn't bring him in. They arrived on scene in time to see Jennifer and Stephen Hayes arriving back from the bank. They went inside the house. They were never confronted or stopped or ordered to do anything. They were just allowed to walk right back into the house and shut the door behind them. They had even got held up at the front door, like I said, because it was locked. Police never knocked on or busted down doors. They just stood there. At 9.56 a.m., Just 35 minutes after the 911 call from the bank, it went over the police radios that there are two suspects moving towards a Chrysler. There are two white males, one with a cap on. The car was backing out. Just a minute before that, 911 calls started coming in about Dr. Pettit from his neighbors and how he was in desperate need of medical attention. At 9.57 a.m., it goes out over the police radios that the house is also on fire, Based on police radio transcripts, police were at the scene of the Pettit house for more than 30 minutes by the time Hayes and Karma tried to run out and flee. During those more than 30 minutes, Jennifer Pettit was raped. She was strangled. Gasoline was poured all over the house and all over the girls upstairs. And the actual lighting of the house happened also during that time. All of it happened while police were outside. Karma Sujewski said in his confession that he had sexually assaulted and abused Michaela while Hayes was at the bank. So while in prison, Karma Sajewski started keeping a diary, and it is not a fun read. In the documentary, they showed one of his writings called "Humanity's Social Hypocrisy." And he wrote, "A thief in the night, I've come to steal not jewels and money." but your personal safety, privacy, and security. I violate your inner asylum of intimacy. Striking out with all the hate I have for myself projected onto you. Senseless insanity derived from desperation in all its doom. The hounds of hell have come for my life payment due. The piper of fear you must pay. The imprint of my life on society forever to stay. Sowing the seeds of psychological terror. A reflection of your hidden cruelty exposed in my mirror. I piss on your optical illusion of peace and innocence. A menacing mind bent on vengeance. Holding captive your sense of security. I feast on your animosity, your peace of mind, and reality. The possession of your thoughts. In another part of his journal, he wrote, The Pettit family passed through their fear and into the calm waters of abject terror, like mesmerized rabbits cornered by a springing predator. To see that fear, that emotional pain I feel inside every day manifest on another's face validates that this pain in me is real, that it exists not only as an apparition in my mind, but in reality as well. Sent on a convergent course, lashing out at life's ambassador, mocking my failures and illustrating humanity's scorn. The shockwaves of myself's hopelessness reverberated its bitterness through my rocked soul at the realization that I had crossed life's bridge of depravity. The awakening of my shadow repressed within, reaching its zenith that morning with the rapturous control of Michaela. Her age was insignificant. So yeah, he wrote about the family in his journal. It's so sick. Anyway, there had come a time in Karma Sejewski's life when he almost got himself on track. He had apparently experienced a great deal of trauma due to sexual abuse by several members of his family, and that was ongoing over a lengthy period of time. Karma Sejewski's way of dealing with it was to leave his home as often as he could and go into other people's homes and kind of pretend it was his house, or just wishing for one day to be able to have a home of his own like that. His family did have him sent to a treatment facility for a time. He got involved in his local church choir, and in short order, Karma Sejewski joined the United States Marine Corps. I don't know how long he was enlisted for, but when he was discharged, that's when his family said that his life started to fall apart again. The rest of the documentary was mostly about what Karma Sojewski said, what he said when it comes to who did what, who's responsible for what, and it's a whole bunch of arguing back and forth between who was more responsible for what happened at the pet at home. Who was more honest? Who lied more? Who poured the gas? Whose idea everything was? Blah, blah, blah. I'm at this point where I'm so disgusted and fed up with these two clowns that I don't even care. It doesn't even matter to me anymore who did what. They're both on the hook for this, as far as I'm concerned anyway. And all the while, interwoven in all of this is the debate on the death penalty in the state of Connecticut. And I pretty much quit watching the documentary after this. They showed an interview with this state senator named Edith Prague, P-R-A-G-U-E, who was talking about the death penalty. The interviewer said something to the senator about her having a conversation with Dr. Pettit and how that conversation changed the Senator's whole mind about the death penalty. And this is what the Senator said, Dr. Pettit came in with his sister-in-law. They said that if the legislature votes to repeal the death penalty, it will make it harder for the jury to make the decision of the death penalty for this monster, this karma at the time he was the one about to go on trial. The senator continued, you have no idea. I could not bring myself to cause this man any more stress. He, he being Karma Sajesky, is a monster. He's such a monster. I said that they should just hang him from his penis from a tree out on Main Street. I can't think of anything bad enough that should happen to that man. After that, I was done with this documentary. Hearing those things come out from somebody who represents the lawmakers in a state, I find to be incredibly disturbing. I don't know where this woman is today. I didn't even bother looking it up, but (sighs) hang him from his penis. My God, that's just how hated these men were. And everyone just wanted to see them gone. So anyway, when the dust settled and all the cases were adjudicated, the death penalty was repealed anyway, It was going to be inevitable. They delayed banning it for this trial in order to make it easier for the jury to vote for them to be put to death. So, having a death penalty trial, two of them and both of them getting sentenced to death, having to get that kind of death penalty qualified jury, all of this that they did was a waste. And I'm not saying I think these guys don't deserve everything that they get coming to them, but. It was just a symbolic move that was all for nothing. In the years following the deaths of his daughters and his wife, Dr. Pettit did not continue to practice medicine. He struggled with survivor's guilt, but he also established a foundation in their memories and continues to serve as the president of their foundation to this day. Dr. Pettit also became involved in his local politics. He's now into his third term as a representative from his district. Let me fact check that real quick. My bad. He did not run for re-election in 2022, so he served his three terms and now he's retired. During his time as a representative of his district, he was an executive member of the Connecticut Science Center Women in Science Committee, Men Against Domestic Violence, and corporator at the hospital of central connecticut in 2012 he married christine Paloff, a volunteer for the pettit family foundation and they welcomed a baby boy in november of 2013. dr pettit said that he still thinks about his family that he lost often but the passage of time has made things a little bit easier So dreamers, I'm going to take you out now and end this story with an excerpt from a 2007 article about the Pettit family that I found in the New York Times, just right after the murders took place. A lot was lost on that day, and the town of Cheshire has not been the same since, and I'm sorry if I am not pronouncing it correctly. I tried practicing, what you hear is what you get. This New York Times article read, The family had become so ingrained in the fabric of life in the small town in central Connecticut that people started tweaking the name of places as a good-natured joke, but also as a sincere tribute. They called it Pettitville. Dr. William Pettit Jr., an endocrinologist, had a practice in downtown Plainville in a red brick building on Whiting Street steps from the now shuttered pettit's general store which his father william pettit senior had run for years the elder pettit who was 73 at the time served on the town council off and on from the late 1960s through the 1990s and recently became chairman of the plainville chamber of commerce his daughter joanna chapman was on the town council you think of plainville you think of the Pettits said Deborah Tom the president of the Rotary Club who runs a sign shop in town on Tuesday two bouquets of yellow carnations and white roses were left in the grass below dr. Pettit's office sign small symbols of this town's sudden pain the day before the authorities said dr. Pettit's wife of 22 years Jennifer Hawk Pettit 48 and two daughters Haley 17 and Michaela 11 were killed after being held hostage in their home in nearby Cheshire by two men. Dr. Pettit, 50, survived and was in serious but stable condition on Tuesday with a head injury. As he recuperated at St. Mary's Hospital in Waterbury, the residents of Plainville and Cheshire, 15 miles apart, were linked by their concern for him and by shock. Everybody is stunned, beyond stunned, said Christopher Wazurko, who serves on the Plainville town council with Ms. Chapman and works closely with Dr. Pettit's father. We're all having a difficult time putting into words what we're feeling. He said, you see some of the things on TV. It happens in other communities and other States. And this one has hit pretty close to home. Plainville is the kind of place that takes pride in living up to its name. It is an old fashioned town in Hartford County made up of about 9.6 square miles and 17,000 people. The big event each year is the Hot Air Balloon Festival. Criminal activity, town officials say, usually involves traffic violations. Many people settle down here for good, and their children do the same. Some of Dr. Pettit's patients, who included relatives of council members and waitresses, were the children of his high school classmates. Dr. Pettit is the medical director of the Jocelyn Diabetes Center at the Hospital of Central Connecticut and is also Plainville's health director. We paid him a small stipend, but he did it, I think, out of a sense of community, said Robert Lee, Plainville's town manager. Mr. Wazorko, the chairman of the town council, said that if he had to estimate the amount of time the elder Mr. Pettit and his wife Barbara and their children had volunteered to Plainville over the decades, it would have measured in years rather than hours. You cannot underestimate it, he said. The members of the Pettit family released a brief statement on Tuesday asking for members of the news media to respect their privacy. Our precious family members have been the victims of horrible, senseless, violent assaults. We are understandably in shock and overwhelmed with sadness as we attempt to gather together to support one another and recognize these wonderful, giving, beautiful individuals who have been so cruelly taken from us. Friends said that Dr. Pettit's parents doted on their grandchildren who in turn seemed to have picked up the zest for volunteerism from their grandparents jennifer hawk pettit was told by doctors eight years ago that she had multiple sclerosis the family particularly haley became involved in raising money for the national multiple sclerosis society haley pettit who had planned to attend dartmouth college in the fall frequently spoke about the disease at the Rotary Club, where her grandfather had been a member since 1967. She also led a fundraising campaign called Haley's Hope in an annual walk in Cheshire, collecting more than $50,000 over the last eight years. The Pettits were the top family fundraising team in Connecticut, said Karen Butler, a spokeswoman for the society's Greater Connecticut chapter. Michaela Pettit had planned to raise money with a team called Michaela's Miracles. Haley Pettit wanted to be a doctor, said Maria Lascaris, Dean of Admissions at Dartmouth. She said that Ms. Pettit, in her application for admission, wrote that medicine had been her career ambition ever since her father gave her a child-sized medical bag and instruments for her fourth birthday. On Tuesday at Dr. Pettit's office here, a man delivering flowers asked the receptionist if Dr. Pettit had recovered enough to know that his family had been murdered. Yes, he knows. Dreamers, I want to thank you so much for being understanding with me taking my time away from the show a little bit. I usually don't do this. I just had a bit of a rough July, August, September, October, November, December. And I'm trying to get my shit together one day at a time. I want to thank you for listening thank you for supporting me. I'm, I'm getting it together, I swear. I'm still here. I'm still alive. I'm still breathing. Still making the show. I love you all. Happy New Year to everybody. And as always, until next time, sweet dreams.